Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a formal? But that hookup was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Every Girl Podcast. I hope you're all having a wonderful week. Emma, I hope you're having a great week as well. I am. Thank you, Josie. Before we get into Ask the Every Girl this week, I want to ask you about this article that you had me copy edit yesterday for the wellness section because I read it and I was like, this is something we need to get into on the pod a little bit and see if people are interested in it because- I am so curious about the O method of manifestation. Oh, this whole idea Emma. of manifesting while you orgasm. I heard about this in like 2021. I remember thinking it was really cool. And I remember I tried it one time, but I don't think it actually worked or like I was going about it the wrong way. I feel like I don't understand what mentality you're supposed to put yourself in. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. Wow, Emma. I have questions. So (laughs) do you remember what you were trying to manifest? Like what was it and why do you feel like it didn't work? I was trying to manifest career things. Which is kind of unsexy. (laughs) Kind of will take you out of the mood. In the article, it said you should be manifesting things related to love during your O-method manifestation, which makes more sense to me. But then I'm sort of like, how are you manifesting love in a healthy way? I am so happy you brought this up to discuss because for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, there's an article up on the Every Girl that we just posted about this method called the O method that's basically using an orgasm to manifest. Like when you're orgasming, you are supposed to visualize your highest self or what you want to manifest. And then your brain waves are at the most open. Again, this is not going to be scientifically accurate, but There is theory that pre-orgasm and as you're orgasming is a really great time to manifest and it's really powerful because your brain is open. Emma, you know, I had the same questions as you did because I'm like, we in this country and this world and this society are already dealing with an orgasm gap, okay, where women are not orgasming as much. Now we have to be thinking about our dream lives or our dream partners and also somehow getting our bodies to orgasm. Like it seems hard and I have not tried it yet. I obviously will. It's on my to-do list, but I had the same question. How are people still able to be in the mood while thinking of what they're manifesting? And also like that would stress me out to be like, let me manifest my dream career. Next time I'm (laughs) orgasming, I'm going to be thinking about like, 
the Evergirl podcast is the top <laughs> podcast for women in the country. And it's like, but also if that does it for you, fine. Like maybe that will yeah. arouse you more. I don't know. But no, I have similar questions. Did you not receive the career you were manifesting at the time? I like, mean, I kind of did. Like it kind of did work. Okay. But I felt like in the moment, I wasn't like, oh, I've tapped into this higher power. You know, I feel like when I journal and manifest, that's when I can be like, yes, I've hit this wavelength. My mind is open and stuff like that. But an orgasm is 10 seconds. It's hard for me to feel like, oh, I've tapped into this higher self in that short time period. So then it's like, oh, I should have been manifesting the whole time. I say this about a lot of things with wellness. It doesn't have to be so serious. If it is just as simple as, oh, this is cool. While I'm feeling so much pleasure and my body's responding to just have the thought, I want to feel this pleasurable in my career. I think that that's fine too, to just have it be a simple thing and try it out and not worry too much about if you're doing it right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, I'm glad I asked you about this because it was definitely in my brain the past 24 hours after reading that article. We can discuss after we've had some time to ruminate and explore for ourselves, try it home at your own risks. Maybe it's like we all have the homework assignment to go do the O method and manifest while we orgasm. And just see what happens. Anyways, without further ado, let's get into this week's (laughs) Ask the Girl. So the question is, I just started a new job that I have been wanting for such a long time, and I feel like I'm finally manifesting my dream career, but I'm struggling with imposter syndrome. I worry all the time that I am not good enough for this role. How do you deal with or overcome imposter syndrome? Did this person read my diary? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Emma, I want you to start for this one because you have also just started a new role and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts at the forefront of your brain. Okay. I've been feeling this too. I think it's a natural part of like starting a new career path or a new job. It can be daunting to fully come into yourself in a new role. And I'm definitely feeling that a little bit. There are also a lot of people who will maybe say to you, if you are achieving the things that you've been manifesting, especially in career, that will be like, oh my gosh, you're doing so amazing. You're such a badass. This is so awesome. Those are all wonderful compliments, but those can also feel like even more pressure to perform, at least for me. Totally. So the ways I'm dealing with it, and I have to grow in these areas, and these are my goals for addressing this problem with myself, is first sticking really hard to my boundaries around work, because I love doing my job, and it it is my dream career that I have manifested. So sticking to my boundaries and stopping work and leaving work at work and focusing on other areas of my life where I can find fun and fulfillment is super important. So that's my first personal goal. And then the other is just when people do compliment me, I've gotten better at this over the years for sure. But when people do compliment me, instead of shoving the compliment off and being like, oh no, I'm not that way. Because I think that that is something that is reflective of a lack of confidence, which I wouldn't say is necessarily my problem. But instead of shoving it off, 
just like saying thank you and moving on, because I think that that eliminates some of the pressure element. So those are my two goals slash tips, tips I'm giving to myself. (laughs) Those are really good tips because it sounds like you're focusing on finding the intrinsic motivation. What is your worthiness for yourself? So those are amazing tips. I'm going to look up the definition of imposter syndrome because everybody has it. We all talk about it, but also I'm curious, what is the difference between imposter syndrome and just like worrying about your self-worth? The definition of imposter syndrome, it says the persistent inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one's own effort or skills. So basically translates to... I don't deserve to be here kind of thing, Yeah. which again, if I've learned nothing from doing this podcast for a year and and interviewing many successful women, it is that we all have imposter syndrome. I could have so many tips on building confidence and knowing your worth, which Liz actually in this conversation gives so many helpful tips, like how to reframe your thinking, how to build confidence that I think will really help with this. So I definitely encourage people to listen through to her tips for boosting your self-worth. But what if we change our relationship with imposter syndrome to begin with? Like, I feel like when we feel hard feelings or when we're feeling worry or stress, we kind of like panic about it. Like we're only supposed to be happy and good and feel good all the time. And, And so we panic about negative feelings that come up. And I almost am like, maybe it's okay to feel this way. Maybe it's not only okay, but it's a good thing. Maybe feeling like an imposter is a sign that you are challenging yourself. Maybe we should be feeling like imposters in order to get to the next place that we want. When we stop questioning ourselves, when we stop saying, am I good enough for this? Can I do this? And we feel comfortable in our job and our role. Maybe that's a sign that we're ready for the next thing. And so it's about shifting our mindset with it. Like it's kind of making me think that saying of how a goldfish adapts the size of whatever environment they're in. So they're really small in a fish tank, but if you were to put them in a river or a lake, it will grow to a bigger (laughs) size. Imposter syndrome kind of feels like that to me where maybe you've been in a tank for a while. So you get used to the feeling of being in a tank without even knowing you're meant to be in a lake, in a river, or maybe even an ocean. And if we look at it like that as it's actually a sign that I've been in too small of a tank for long enough and I'm ready for a river, I'm ready for a pond, I'm ready for a freaking ocean, and we look at it as a good thing, I think that we would feel a little bit more comfortable with it. Like obviously I'm a big believer in changing negative feelings, but sometimes it's also about changing our relationship to the negative feelings. For example, jealousy. We're told to see jealousy as a bad or uncomfortable feeling. Like if we're looking at someone else and they have the career that we want or they're happier in their career or whatever, we're used to feeling like that's an uncomfortable feeling. So every time I felt jealousy in my life, it's like this negative feeling, limiting feeling. I'm jealous of someone because I'm not that way because I don't have that because I'm not there. And I've actually started to shift the way that I see jealousy as a good thing. Like I chose to see it as a sign that that's what I'm meant for. So when I see other people that have something else that I want or I feel like I don't have, I look at that as that's a sign that I meant for that. It's not a sign of what I'm lacking. It's a mirror to what my future is meant to be. And that has changed everything for me. You know, I I use the feeling of envy 
to build my confidence instead of tear it down. And I think the same can be true for that feeling of imposter syndrome. We're so used to feeling I'm so uncomfortable because I'm challenging myself. And that is something that should be celebrated. Yes to changing the confidence, working on self-worth, which again, Liz shares so many amazing tips in this episode, but also maybe we can change our relationship to imposter syndrome to begin with and start looking at, at it like a little smile from the universe of this is the path that you are meant to be on. That like really hit. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> I was so glad. Goldfish metaphor, I'm so like, glad. That really got me because it is so true what you said. Like maybe the second we stop feeling imposter syndrome is actually the moment when we're ready to move on to the next thing. So then maybe feeling imposter syndrome is actually right. just a sign we're in the right place right now. That is such good advice. Exactly. You're blowing my mind today. Emma, I'm so glad. Literally, the only reason I think that is because I've had to deal with this shit ton myself, like launching the podcast. Of course, I was thinking like, who the fuck am I to launch a podcast and be the host of a podcast? I deal with it all the time. For all of the big interviews that we've had that I've been really excited about, who the fuck am I to interview this person? Or who am I to think that I can have a successful podcast. Like I have no experience. That's the definition of imposter syndrome is like you don't believe that you have actually earned where you got. And so I only have come to these conclusions because I've had to do a lot to deal with it for myself. We all experience that is the point. I, I have learned from all these amazing, successful women that we've interviewed. They all have experienced it as well and continue to experience it. So that's what kind of changed my mind of like, yeah, 1000%. Let's work on our self-worth. Let's work on our confidence. Let's work on our intrinsic motivation. But also if we're all experiencing it, maybe it's not this awful bad thing. Maybe we can change our relationship with it to use it as a sign that we are on the path that we're meant to be on. And like how much more empowering is it to think of that way? Like how much more freeing is that to know that this is something that if we're all experiencing it, we should just change our relationship with it instead. So anyways, I hope that was helpful for you guys out there dealing with imposter syndrome. Again, we all are to some degree. If you're not, honestly, challenge yourself to something else. That's what I'm saying. But this conversation with Liz Tran today is actually the perfect episode for you guys to listen to because it goes into that and gives so many tangible tips for working on that self-worth in a totally different way. So let's dive into the episode. Liz Tran is an executive coach and the author of The Karma of Success, Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius. Liz has advised leading tech companies like Airtable and Glossier and coaches, Fortune 500 CEOs and startup founders. She draws on her own experience, which by the way, she used to be the only female executive at a leading venture capital firm in her quote, past life before she decided to leave it all behind. She also taps into ancient sources of wisdom, such as Zen Buddhism, to help people achieve the success that they are meant to have. In this episode, Liz shares so many amazing secrets to success. She talks about tapping into your inner genius, how to be your own mentor. She also explains why putting too much time and effort actually prevents you from being successful. And she explains why confidence is like a bank account, which was such a cool way to think of confidence that I had never heard of before. We also talk about how to view money as an energetic exchange so you can transform your relationship with wealth 
You guys, you have truly never heard career advice like this before. Since having this conversation with Liz, I have implemented so many of the things we talked about into my own career and even just my mindset. If you are enjoying the show or this episode brings you any value or inspiration, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Now let's dive into my conversation with executive coach and author, Liz Tran. So since you are the author of The Karma of Success, we're going to start off with a big question. How did you find success? I love this question because I actually found success twice. The first time I found it, I thought I had arrived and I really hadn't. And that was when I was chasing this external idea of success. It was this idea that shaped from when I was really young, that it was about prestige and about money and about title. And I was working at one of the best venture capital firms in the whole world in an executive role. I was the only female executive there. And I had all the success I had ever wanted in my early 30s, but I was missing something. And that was actually meaning happiness and authenticity. It was great. I had quote unquote success, but it was success for some imaginary person, not me. And the second way I found success was by going on a path that was more bespoke and more unique to who I am as an individual. And so that journey took multiple years to go down and to even figure out, okay, how do I define it for myself? What do I care about? What matters to me? And here I am now. And I think that, I don't know if there was an actual end point to it, but there was definitely like a tipping point where I felt, okay, I'm definitely closer. And I feel like I've accomplished a lot of what I want to do. And so regardless, I don't think it ever is a horizon line that you get to and you think, I've arrived. I don't have to do anything else. I think we are all always growing, evolving, progressing, whether we realize it or not. And the true definition of success is whether or not the life that you have chosen matches all those things that you want now in your most recent evolution of who you are. That's such an interesting definition. And I love you speaking on your two different layers to finding success because I think so many people, myself included, are in the mindset of when I get to a certain level, when I make a certain income, then I will be really happy and fulfilled. And a lot of people get to the point that they thought, oh, once I get there, I'm good. Then I'm happy. Then I'm fulfilled. And don't feel that. Yeah. I think we've all experienced this arrival at the finish line and having it feel really empty. Yes. And it's graduating from college or high school, it's finally getting that promotion that you always wanted. And we get there and we're like, whoa, (laughs) this is it. I'm suddenly not a different person today. And psychologists call it the arrival fallacy. It's this idea that we believe once we arrive, then we'll have everything. And it's why it's not uncommon for people who have just been married to feel depressed right after their wedding because they had such hopes and expectations for it. Or even when people who win the lottery, they are not statistically happier a year later than non-lottery winners. What does the karma of success mean? Karma is this concept in Buddhism where all of your actions in this life add up to something in the future. It's not transactional though. It's not like you help a little old lady cross the street and then there's a hundred dollars waiting for you on the other side, right? It's Which is what it's so many like people that. think karma is, yeah. And it's more just about, are you living your life in alignment? And if you are, then all these treasures will unfold. And so what I 
thought about when I wrote about the karma of success was the idea that the same thing is true for our careers. We can orient ourselves towards getting the treasures of salary and prestige. It doesn't really lead anywhere, but really true meaning and happiness comes when you follow the karma of success and that all of your actions, behaviors, decisions are in alignment with what you value and who you are. And then everything else just flows from there. You don't even have to worry about getting the right job and pushing and being sharp elbowed and getting that promotion because you will naturally attract it and it will naturally come to you. It's so different than the narrative we've been told about career success. It's always been like, you've got to work really hard and we're breaking the glass ceiling and you've got to put in all the effort and got to be productive all the time and work hard to know that maybe it's less about the time and struggle you put in and it's more about living in alignment. I mean, that's a radical idea. Do you ever find pushback on that? Like, do you feel like people have these limiting beliefs? Yes, 100%. So I coach CEOs and founders of tech companies. And so think about the narrative there, which is people sleeping in the office, eating ramen, wearing the same hoodie every day and not making any money until one day they finally get it all. A lot of that mythology has been permeated through books and TV shows, et cetera. And so my clients come into this new job that they have thinking that that's what the model of success looks like. And I try to tell them, hey, you are going to burn yourself out if you keep doing things this way. And often I have to let them go there and then start to show them that a lot of their greatest breakthroughs come when they've just gone back from visiting their family or just gotten back from a weekend long trip with their closest friends. And in those spaces where there's a little bit more ease, that's when their actual genius and creative ideation can flow through. And it's very interesting because they definitely fight against it. And they think, oh, well, it's not productive for me to do the things I love. I'd rather knock some things off on my to-do list than go to yoga. I can do with an hour less of sleep because then I can get some bills paid, whatever it might be. But then they start to notice, I force them or I show them and ask them to start to notice how it might be fewer hours that they're doing, but those hours are actually more substantive. And there's a beautiful graph that everyone should Google. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. It's spelled Y-E-R-K-E-S. And it shows how some amount of pressure, some amount of stress is good. It helps actually activate our senses and our creativity But once you tip over into burnout, stress, anxiety, then your cognitive processes actually shut down. You're not going to be as good at problem solving. You enter into fight or flight. And in fight or flight, you're not solving quadratic equations. You're just really struggling for your life. You start to shut down your organs as well, because all it is is about just getting away from whatever is chasing you. And so the same thing happens with people who are burning themselves out consistently. They think that they're doing the best they can for the companies they work for and for their careers, when really all they're doing is impeding those really important prefrontal cortex processes of advanced thinking, creative brainstorming, et cetera. I completely believe that with all my heart because I've even seen firsthand. I obviously am not Fortune 500 CEO executive, so I don't know what that life is like. But I felt for a long time like I had to really prove myself and then I started my own side business. So then I felt like every hour that I was not spent working at the Every Girl, I had to be spent working on my side business or else I did not deserve success in either lane. And it wasn't until I was so exhausted, I need to like take a step back and focus on what I actually love and what I'm passionate about. And also just taking care of myself 
that's when the podcast came about. That's when I healed so many symptoms. And also that's when I feel like I can take on so much more because I spend so much time taking care of myself and like having a life outside of it that I feel like when I'm on, I am on. I can understand a lot of people listening to this are like, wait, what? It's not about how much time and energy you put in. What do you believe are some other common misconceptions about success that you see? The biggest misconception, I think it's related to this, where people think that the harder they are on themselves, the more successful they will be. I'm I'm talking about the inner critic, that voice that always says, you're not good enough. You're not as good as the people around you. You have to be better. And so many of my clients think, well, if I didn't have that voice, I wouldn't be where I am because that's what pushes me. That voice that says, you didn't do that well enough. Do that again. You're failing, et cetera. But the truth, the real key to success is that the more you love yourself, the more successful you will be. And it's such a tricky term. What does it mean to love yourself? I think it means that you approach your work from a state of deep care for yourself and you know, Albert Einstein was one of the most significant and poignant thinkers of our time. And he spent his whole life taking care of himself. He would play music and he would go on these long walks. He slept for 10 hours every night and he would take naps almost every day. And in those naps was when he really believed that he did his best thinking. So if he had a problem that he couldn't find the answer to, he wouldn't force himself to keep working until he was exhausted. He'd say, I'm going to take a nap and I'll be refreshed and ready to solve this problem. And it worked for him over and over again. And so you are your own best teammate. You are your own best tool. And you have to treat yourself like someone you love. I think some of us treat us in a way that if a boss said said those things to us and critiqued us in that way, we would quit. We would say, why are you talking to me like this? But we do it to ourselves nonstop. So, so true. And I think so radical in a world that really does emphasize stress like a badge of honor. You know, we'll talk about, oh, I got no sleep last week. I'm so busy. And it's almost like we're bragging about it. Like we're patting ourselves on the back for putting so much effort in and not getting sleep and not taking care of ourselves. What do you say to people who do find it difficult to believe loving myself is the key to success? Like how have you seen for yourself that self-love is the key to get to where you want to be in your career? I say to those people, Think about a person in your life who has been extraordinarily motivational. So it might be a sports coach, a mentor, a boss, a parent, someone who pushed you to get to your highest potential. And think about the relationship that that person had with you. How did they treat you? What did they say to you? What did they believe about you? And that person may have been tough, but... Deep down, it was rooted in this belief that you are special, you are good, you are amazing, and that's why they're investing in you. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about us being so easy on ourselves. It's more this idea that can you see yourself through the lens your greatest mentor did, where they're investing in you because they really, really believe in you. So do you really, really believe in yourself? Are you cheering yourself on? Are you your number one advocate? We spend so much of our time looking for external reinforcement to get on that Forbes 30 under 30 list or to hear your boss say, you've done a great job. And the skill and the muscle to really cultivate is to do that for yourself. So you're not constantly fishing for someone else to tell you that you're okay, but for you to know deep down when you're doing a great job, because that 
internal confidence will propel you so much further than the false confidence that comes from other people, other sources, because it's not always there. It's very, very up and down. It's really about sustaining yourself at a consistent energetic level all of the time. And the only one who can do that is you. Think about someone who has always had your back, who's always cheered you on and try to emulate that voice in your head and start to notice how when you're cheering yourself on, it raises your energy levels, more great ideas start to flow through you and how you become really open and really free to be your best and highest self. How can someone tap into that mindset if they're so programmed to the opposite mindset of being their harshest critic? Do you have any tips for adjusting into that new way of thinking? Yes. It is so sad sometimes because I have these clients who on paper have everything. They went to the best schools. They worked at really great places. They're very, very gifted in so many ways. And when I ask them, what percentage of your thoughts are negative? So many of them say a hundred percent or 90%. And it's so hard for them to exercise that muscle. And so the first thing that you can do is in your journal at the end of every day, just writing down one thing that you did well that day. Look for a small thing. Notice how you had a expert conversation with someone that you really helped them in that conversation, or even that you got through your email. Another suggestion is to look back on the course of your experience starting at age one and find 10 moments where you really shined. It can be in an external way, like you won an award, or even an internal way, like you stood up for yourself, or you stood up for a friend, or you bounced back after failure. But you start to notice all these things that you do well. And what you're doing there is we're combating this innate negativity bias that we all have. Every human, it takes no time to imprint a negative experience or memory. Something bad happens to us or we mess up, we automatically hold on to it. It's like Velcro. When good things happen, the brain actually needs seven or eight seconds of focusing on it before it becomes a memory. It's like Teflon. And so with those two suggestions, one, your self-gratitude at the end of every day, and then two, looking at the top 10 moments of when you've done well, you're just helping to balance that score between negative and positive experiences that we have this really steep negativity bias. I mean, that's so true. I've experienced that with just reviews on the podcast. I get a hundred good ones, but the one bad one, I'm obsessed with it. It's interesting how I'm my own worst critic, but I don't even realize because I don't think I'm being hard on myself, but I will realize when other people have negative comments and obsess over those. And in that way, I am becoming my own worst critic without even realizing it. So I, I like knowing that's what our brains automatically do. And we have to put in work to shift so that we can be viewing the positive first. Yeah. And Josie, my suggestion would be that when you're reading those reviews, with the positive ones, knowing that you have to take seven seconds of focusing on it, really just reading it slowly and thinking, oh, wow, that's really nice because then you're willing your brain to make it a memory. That's what I do too, because obviously there's a lot of critique in the world. And I feel this sometimes where I'll just be walking down the street and I'll remember something stupid I said from like five years ago. You're a hyper fixate. So true. It'll stop me in my tracks. And I had to think, hey, maybe I need to remind myself about the countless times, even in this past week where I was totally normal (laughs) and acceptable socially, you know, because we don't ever think about it that way. So be really conscious and intentional about 
those seven or eight seconds where we want that positive experience to become a memory. What other tips do you have for people who do find that really difficult to transition into that mindset of, I am amazing, I am confident, I can do it. Are there other tips that you recommend for your clients? Yes, confidence is one of my favorite things to talk about because there are so many myths about confidence that need to be debunked immediately because they're really impacting us. (laughs) So the first one is that I think people think confidence is stagnant. It's something that we are innately born with and it doesn't really move. So, you know, someone, let's call him Sam, might be born with lots of confidence and that's just who he is. He's a confident person. And then someone else, let's call her Liz. (laughs) Maybe she thinks, oh, I'm not very confident. I'll never be confident. I'm not someone who speaks up in meetings. I'm not someone who can really share honestly about my achievements. I'm not someone who stands out in the crowd. That is all BS. Confidence is moving all the time. And it's actually like a bank account where you can make deposits into it and grow the balance up so that your confidence is a lot more abundant. You have a lot more of it every day. And then there are experiences that we have that take the confidence away. You know, maybe someone says something mean to us or we mess up on a project at work. That is a withdrawal from the confidence bank account. So we each have a bank account and I want to invite all the listeners to think, where's your bank account right now? Is it hovering right at zero? Is it flush with tens of thousands of dollars in it? Or is it negative? You're running a, a, a deficit on your confidence. And then wherever you are, knowing that you can make small steps to actually nurture it and make deposits. Some ways that I think about making deposits are the things that I mentioned of the noticing when you do things well, also noticing the times in life where you've really excelled. And it's important to have this concept that you are in control, you can change it, and that you are the only one who can make these deposits and withdrawals. Don't give anyone else the power to do it. Just because someone rejected you in some way, that doesn't have to be a withdrawal. That's about them. It's not about you. Don't let that impact your confidence bank account. And what a gift, right? To not be waiting around for someone to tell us that we're smart or we're good enough. And just to be able to find those moments to give it to ourselves. I have never heard of confidence being described as a bank account. That makes so much sense. So if someone does get fired, get broken up with, get a bad review that might hurt their confidence? What can you do to protect it from becoming a withdrawal? That's such a great question. The first step is to not globalize the situation. Take a breakup, for example. One person has rejected you. This is true, (laughs) right? But don't make it a global event that means no one will ever love me or I'm unlovable or you have a bad review at work. Don't think I'm horrible at my job. Just think I have had a rough go of this particular time. You don't globalize and then you also don't personalize. So much of it is about things outside of our control. It's not about how good we are or if we're okay innately as humans. What I always say is, yes, maybe I messed up and I'm going to take full responsibility for that. But I know that I am still a worthwhile person. Do you hear the difference of I messed up, I'm a bad person. I messed up, and I'm going to be okay. This person broke up with me and I'm sad, or this person broke up with me and I'm never going to find anyone else, or this person broke up with me and I'm unlovable. And look for other evidence 
that contradicts some of that globalization and personalization that we do. If you say to yourself, I got broken up with and I'm unlovable, you think, no, you know what? There have been lots of people who have loved me. My friends love me. My family loves me. I love myself. Or if you think I'm not good at my job, or you're like, well, you know, maybe I'm not good at this particular thing, but here are all these other ways that I am good at my job. And also here are instances where I've been bad at something and then grown and learned to master it. And so it's again, that muscle of starting to look for the gold. You look for those positive nuggets that reinforce who you are, and then you hang on to them for seven seconds so that they become reminders in your brain. But we have to be on the search for them. We have to be on the lookout because our brains don't naturally want us to. Most of the time, it's not about you. And if it is about you, doesn't mean it's always going to be about you. It's like we're changing our identity by saying, I'm not lovable or I'm not good at this. I'm not talented. I'm not worthy enough. When in reality, you're so right. It's just one instance. It's one person's opinion. And when I have in the past, let it affect my worth where I'm like, wow, I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable or not talented or whatever it is, then it stops being a learning opportunity too, because then it just feels like, well, I'm hopeless. Like I suck. Whereas if we're like, okay, this is just an opinion. I'm still lovable. I'm still worthy. I'm still deserving. Let me listen to what the the critique, the feedback actually is, because I know that I'm so worthy that I deserve to grow even more so we can use it to actually help us grow instead of hold us back, which is cool when we can take the power back. It's an empowering thing to know that critique has nothing to do with our worth. It has to do with someone else's experience of us. And that is something we can use to grow rather than hold us back. Exactly. And I take great comfort in knowing that everyone fails. And truly the people who are the most successful have failed way more than anyone else by an order of magnitude. Someone like Sarah Blakely, who is a self-made billionaire when she started Spanx, she was rejected so many times. I mean, she used to sell fax machines door to door and she tried to audition for a certain role at Disneyland and she was rejected for it. And then she would go get rejected every day when she was selling fax machines. And even when she was trying to get factories to make Spanx, they said, this is a horrible idea. I would never do this. She was rejected for two years before she found a manufacturing partner that would take her on. And look where she is today. And that is so much more failure than any of us will ever experience in our lives. I am very open and honest about my failures. I write about them a lot in the book. And it's funny because a lot of people are now reading the book, my clients, my friends, and they're just like, wow, I never realized that you failed this much. (laughs) And I'm really proud of it because it means that I'm learning and I'm growing and I never stopped believing in myself. I became obsessed with Googling failure stories about people like Stephen King. He was rejected by 30 publishers before he found one. And I would just write them all down in my notebook. And I would say, you know what? I'm in good company. Whenever I had a failure, something didn't go my way. I didn't land a client that I really wanted. said, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to love myself more and to get better. That is a good tip. And also it's that cliche of think of failure as redirection where you may not be where you are today doing what you love and feel so fulfilled by if you had not experienced those failures before. Like it got you to where you needed to be. And so to look at how Oprah got fired from a hosting job or, you know, like you hear all those stories and it's really thinking about them, letting them impact the way you think of yourself, knowing that 
yeah, you're in good company when you're rejected or when you feel like you failed. Another topic I'm really dying to get into with you is your inner genius. I know that you talk about this a lot. Tell the audience, what is the inner genius? I love the concept of the inner genius. It's my favorite thing. So all of us have an inner genius. I've worked with so many different founders. I work with this personality assessment called the Hogan. I've given over 200 people the Hogan personality assessment to dig into their strengths. And every person has genius within them. And this is a really hard thing for us to see and acknowledge in ourselves because we think of genius as something that is maybe only relegated to a very special few in the population. Nobel Prize winners, Olympic athletes, people who are at the top of their field. And so we look at ourselves and we think, oh, I'm just a regular person. I don't deserve this title of genius. But the original conception of the word genius started with the ancient Romans who were very clear in the way that they titled genius, that it belonged to everyone. The word genius comes from the root that means to be born from, because the Romans believed that as soon as a person came out of the womb, then the spirit of genius immediately attached itself to them. And that was the voice that was whispering in their ear, giving them direction, guidance, helping them create the best work of their lives. And so I believe this is true too, that we all have it. And it's just about how much we're willing to listen to it. And the mechanism that inner genius uses to talk to us is intuition. We all have intuition. You can call it gut instinct, just a knowing, but it's really that feeling of when you're like, ah, I have a sense about this, right? I think I know this, even if I don't know how I know it, I feel like I'm right about this. And we don't listen to our intuition enough because we think, oh, well, it's just an idea I had. We devalue it. Instead, we look for external sources, like what our peers are doing, what data says, what the information tells us we should do. When really, I think we can all look back and see how our inner genius guided us. It's that feeling where maybe your inner genius says, I think you should move to Denver. There's no mathematical equation for why you should move to Denver, but you just get the sense that you should, and then you do, and you find your dream job. Or the inner genius says, I think you should swipe on this person, even though it looks like you have nothing in common with them, but it's this feeling like, I know. And then they wind up being the love of your life. The genius is always guiding us. And most of the time we are not listening to it. We're like, eh, that's a dumb idea. Oh, well, it's just a thought I had. But really, if we really tuned in and we made time and space for it, our whole lives would open up. How do you apply your inner genius to real life? How does it look to tangibly use that inner genius? How does someone know that they're tapped in? Well, the first thing I would say is to look at how much time you're spending with what I call the three S's. And those are stillness, solitude, in silence. And if your life is very, very busy and you have nonstop to-do lists, I'm willing to bet that you don't hear from your inner genius very much because you're literally just running from one action-packed activity to the next, or you're in your email, responding to slacks. And then when you're working on a problem at work, you can of course educate yourself, get all the right information But what it comes down to is trusting your judgment. So many of the choices that we make are not black and white. There's not an objective decision to be made. Like the branding of your podcast, which I love. I know you recently rebranded. That's not a data-driven decision, right? You could look at every 
podcast cover that's out there and see what pops. And of course, there's some best practices around color and symmetry, but you're making that intuitive choice for what is right for your brand. And so I think we can do that with creative things, but I also want to remind people that you can do that with other choices too. I use my intuition with making judgment calls about conversations that I need to have that are tough. I use my intuition when I'm coaching people. And of course, I'm very data-minded person, but I also mostly lean on my intuition. I, I think that you have to have both. It's like the sizzle and the steak. You need to be extremely researched in what you do, but at the end of the day, you have to trust yourself. The analogy I'll use in case it's helpful for people is people who are really, really good at chess are intuitively making those moves. They're not actually calculating step-by-step, oh, if I move this piece here, these are the three alternative scenarios that can happen. Here's the probability. They do it like that, just on instinct, but they also have been playing chess for 10,000 hours to be able to get to that point. And so that's what I say, do your research, get to a point where you feel like there's some mastery. Most of the time, there's no right answer and just go with your gut. So it's a combination of knowing yourself and tapping into your authenticity, who you authentically are and what you want out of life. And then also having the skill set, whether that's experience, education in the field you want to be in. So you can be making decisions based on, I know this is the right next step for my career, the business I'm trying to grow, whatever it is, right? It's kind of like the combo. Exactly. It's a combination. And then really trusting that feeling, even if it goes against the data. So I'll just use an example. Maybe there's a guest that someone recommends for your podcast and they have a lot of followers. On paper, it seems like they'd be really good. But you meet them for pre-call and you just get the sense, this is not right. Don't worry about the data. Just trust yourself. Go with it. There's usually a reason why. And I would invite everyone to look at times where their intuition hasn't led them astray. Maybe if you had an instinct about a company you're interviewing with that couldn't really be proven, but you knew this isn't the place for me. And later it was proven to be true that there was sexual harassment or something. You know, we all had these moments where you just get a sense and you get a vibe and then you don't know how you know it, but later on you see that you were right. And I just think we don't listen to that enough. We also don't make enough time and space to be able to hear it. I think that we should all spend as much time in our internal worlds as we do the external worlds. And by internal, I mean journaling, meditating, exercising, going on a walk, even sitting for a moment before you jump into a meeting and asking yourself, what do I really want from this meeting? What do I really want to accomplish? And so it's creating these small moments and pockets where you can start to ask yourself, what's really, really going on here? I've never asked that question myself before a meeting. I've never once been like, what do I need out of this? It's always like, okay, how do I show up as my best self? What does the team need? It's never, what do I want to get out of this? And that probably would change a lot of how I would show up, not to make this my personal therapy session. But I think that there's so many people that can identify with, wow, I've never actually brought my inner genius, my intuition into my career. I've never once sat and asked, what do I need? And I think that that could probably change a lot of people's perspectives and also outcome of their career. 100%. For people who struggle with knowing the difference between what I know in the book you, you refer to as the ego, how do people know the difference between what is their inner genius and what is their ego? For example, if they have this feeling that's like, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't put myself out there, that could easily be the ego being like, 
we don't want to get rejected. We're afraid of this. Or is that the inner genius saying that's not the right move? Go a different route. You know, how do you know the difference between the ego and the inner genius? Yeah. So I'll use an example from my own life. The deal with writing a book, nonfiction, is you get a year to write it. So you sell it to a publisher and then they give you a year to actually give them the goods. You have to turn it in so that they can publish it. And I had a whole year. I had really nine months and I spent most of that time writing, but nothing really good was coming out of it. The chapters were okay, but I didn't love them. I think people would read it and be like, oh yeah, this is fine. But I just knew it wasn't my spark and I didn't really know what to do. So I just kept writing and I was very busy because I didn't take any time off to write this book. I was working full-time, running my business, doing lots of other stuff on the side too. And I got to a point where I finally had the three S's, silence, stillness, and solitude on a weekend away with friends. We were all writing books at the same time. And so we had lots of time to just sit and be alone in nature. And one night, it was the second night I was there, I couldn't fall asleep. And I had this thought over and over again, the premise of your book is wrong. You got to throw it all out and start over again. And it felt so right, but it was also so scary because I only had six weeks left in my book deadline where I had to turn in a minimum of 50,000 words that would live permanently in the world. And the book originally was a, a spiritual MBA for entrepreneurs. It was sort of like, what can you learn from Buddhism, the Tao about building a business? And that night I thought, I want to write this about following your inner genius and your intuition. This is what the book should actually be about. And of course, we talk about the career, but truly the, the book is about your roadmap to uncovering what your inner genius is and how you can operate from a place of really being in touch with nurturing that inner genius. So I woke up the next morning. I was so tired because I'd been up all night. I said to my friends, I'm going to change this book. I have to throw everything away. And as soon as I said it, I started to get a lot of doubt and get really scared. And these are the thoughts that ran through my mind. Am I self-sabotaging myself because I'm afraid of success? Am I doing this because I'm lazy and I can't push through and persevere with my original idea? Am I doing this because I'm a bad writer and I'm just looking for something to blame and distract me? And so all these thoughts came in and I started wondering, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? And then I thought, okay, Liz, you have to do a check to see if this is your inner genius or your ego that wants you to change the topic of the book. And really what it comes down to is the difference between fear-based thinking and possibility thinking, abundance. Which one is the voice that says, what if this goes wrong? That's your ego. And then what is the voice that says, what if this goes right? And that is your inner genius. And as soon as I thought about that, I was like, clearly all these thoughts that are running through my mind are fear-based. And clearly all the thoughts, when I think about this new book of inner genius, of intuition, I get so excited. I'm like, yeah, I could really help people. This would be so exciting. This would be so fun. There are all these things I want to say. The energy felt completely different. And so I think if you're wondering what the decision is, then close your eyes and envision yourself doing either of those scenarios, choice A or choice B. And then see how your body feels. Is there one where you feel kind of fearful and clenched up? And is there another one that feels a lot more hopeful and a lot more optimistic? I had a lot of ego thoughts coming in when I first met my now husband. I had all these thoughts of, what if it doesn't work out? 
What if you're not compatible? What if he breaks your heart? And there's this other voice that said, but what if this is your soulmate? (laughs) And so that's the way that I do it now is I see which one feels hopeful and which one feels scared. That's such an easy way to understand the difference. Or if it's like your true inner genius telling you go a different route, then you get excited about what the other route is. The other thing I want to talk to you about is getting more into the spirituality side of things, because I love that you combine spirituality with business. You hear a lot that business is separate from your well-being, but I think that wellness and business are one and the same. How well you are and how happy and energized you are affects your work. But most importantly, how fulfilled you are in your career affects the rest of your life. Work is life's energy. They're one and the same, I think. So I'm really curious to hear from you. Why did you want to combine spirituality with business? And why do you think it's important too? I think that there's no more spiritual experience than the journey of work. And it's really interesting because when so many different traditions spiritual growth and awakening has required a lot of work. You go on a journey or maybe you go on a vision quest, you go on a pilgrimage or you go on a mission trip, something like that. And by spirituality, I don't mean any sort of organized religion or philosophy. I mean the individual's journey to discover who they are. To me, that is what I think spirituality is. And you can apply that lens to work. What better place to examine your insecurities and your talents and places that scare you and the places where you need to grow. Work puts this pressure on us that we don't have in other places of our lives to really see us. And I think a lot of us don't take that opportunity. We show up and we're like, okay, what do I need to do for my job today? Versus asking, what can my job do for me in terms of my spiritual growth and my personal evolution? And that's the thing. We are all growing and evolving And if we say that that only has to happen outside the confines of work, then we're going to get stuck. I truly believe that the person that you are in your quote unquote personal life is the same as who you are at work. And it's how we all have had that experience of bosses or coworkers who are maybe toxic. And you can picture what they're like in their personal life. You're like, I know exactly how you treat your partner. I know exactly how you treat your mom, right? And so we have this amazing source of friction. Work creates all these challenges and obstacles for us. And spirituality is the tool that helps you achieve them. In Buddhism, they say that life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. I truly believe that. We cannot escape the things that are hard, but what better way to make use of them than when we have setbacks at work, when we have disappointments, how can you make that not just about your work and like being a professional setback, but rather see that as an opportunity to grow and evolve as a spiritual being. I also feel like we spend so much time at work. Most of us work for most of our lives, five days a week, most of the day for multiple decades. Like if we're not seeing our work life as something that is helping us grow and achieve our happiest, most fulfilling life, what are we doing? I don't mean that your work has to be helping people and like working for nonprofit. I just mean like, is it something that is fulfilling you and it's helping you become your happiest version of yourself? And if not, how do you change that? Do you change your mindset? Do you change your job? I think that we have to stop looking at our career life as being separate from our personal development and happiness in our life. Yeah, there's no separation. And I honestly think that a person who who does a lot, who does invest a lot in themselves, 
that's the karma of success. Just take care of you and don't worry so much about the outcome. Success and achievements will inevitably grow from the soil of who you are. What about the relationship between spirituality and money? Is there one? I think so. I will preface this by saying that I do love making money. (laughs) You know, it's always been something that has been in my mind. (laughs) And I grew up extremely poor. So I had this whole mindset growing up. Money is going to solve all of our problems. My mom was always so unhappy because we didn't have a lot of money. And if I can just make enough of it so that it's not a stress, then life will be great. Now... I have a totally different relationship with money that is still very positive. And I think the first thing I want people to know is that money is neutral. It's not good or bad. And we put a lot of labels on it. Some people say, I love money. It's the best thing in the world. People say, I hate money. It ruins everything, capitalism. And it is not doing either of those things. It is just what we're projecting and what we're bringing in from our families of origin In some people's families, let's say their parents got divorced and they fought over money, they might think money really ruins relationships. Or in another case where you might say, oh, money's actually a really good thing. My parents got closer because of it. Money means love. So just know that whatever you're coming into it with, that's just you. (laughs) That's just you projecting onto money. Let money have a clean slate. Money is just energetic exchange. I'm giving some set of energy in exchange for something else. So even our jobs, we show up, we put some energy into the work that we do, and then we get energy back in the form of a paycheck. And something I always have my clients pay attention to is where's your energy level? It's the same thing as confidence. It's like a bank account. Our energy goes up and down. And in the times when we are most taxing it, you just want to make sure you're getting the right energy back. And that could be in the form of money, or it could be in the form of people at work supporting you, in the form of recognition, giving you opportunities, giving you ways to grow. And so I say, look at all of it holistically. When you start to see money as just energy, you can see that there are a lot of different ways that we can get paid and be rewarded and get that exchange. And there are also a lot of ways that are not money related that people can really take our energy to. So you could have a workplace that two people get paid the same amount. Let's say both people make $80,000 in one place because of all the other factors really enriches how much energy you get. And the other place, you just feel totally drained. How do you recommend people to develop a relationship with money that feels like abundant and spiritual rather than limiting or materialistic, which I think is the other way it could go? Make it about yourself. So notice how your energy is throughout the average day. On a scale from one to 10, are you generally at a three? If so, you are being way underpaid energetically. (laughs) Financially might be part of that, but also there's something happening that you're consistently below average. If you're at a 10, then you're feeling adequately fulfilled for the work that you're doing. And so I say, start there and notice because then you're centering your experience of money around your own personal needs where the dollar amount doesn't actually really matter. I have a friend who is a really talented... She doesn't do this full-time for work, but she does astrology part-time. And she was saying, I can't do this anymore. It's so draining. These sessions just take so much out of me. And then our mutual friend suggested, why don't you just charge more? So she doubled her prices. She actually saw more people start to book with her and she didn't feel as drained after these sessions anymore because she got to the place where it was a fair energetic exchange. Mm -hmm. I don't think 
We all need to rush out and quit our jobs. I just think we need to acknowledge when we are not getting what we deserve. And sometimes it's a salary negotiation. Other times it's other things that are draining us that are much more important. For me, when I think about that job where I was getting paid everything, had the title, it wasn't a fair energetic exchange because there were still huge chunks of things that lit me up that I was missing. Now I have built up a great business, but for the first couple years of starting my business, I was making way less than I did in venture capital. But every morning I woke up and I felt more energized and I never regretted my choice. And so I'd say, make this about you. And when it comes to money, make sure that you are getting whatever you need to feel fulfilled. And if your employer can't do it with compensation, see what else there is for you. Wow. Thinking of it like an energetic match. I think a lot of people will automatically think I'm not being paid enough. Therefore, I'm not receiving enough energy. But then I think your example on the flip side, maybe you're getting paid a lot, but you're not receiving enough energy in other ways that would fulfill you. So then it's still not an energetic match. That's a brand new concept for me to think about money in that way. That's so cool. Liz, we're going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. First one for you, a productivity tip or a hack that you swear makes your life better. I think having a really good morning routine makes me so productive. So on the topic of energy, if I start the day at a 10, I'm going to be so productive all day. And so I do whatever it takes to get there. Yoga, nice breakfast, walking my dog, sometimes even watching a comedy special on TV before I start my day. If I'm really in a bad mood, I have no shame in saying I'm going to watch 30 minutes of TV in the morning because maybe it's going to put me in a good mood. I'm not like you have to be the most productive, go to Barry's boot camp. do whatever makes you feel good in the morning. That's it. Be luxurious, treat yourself like you're the most special human being on the world and then start your day going into it like you have had all of your needs met. And that's my productivity tip because I do so many different jobs. I have a podcast. I run an Instagram account. I'm a coach. I'm a writer. I do public speaking. My email is always just overflowing and I can crush work when I'm out of 10. And then we all know the days when you're out of one and you're like trying to write one email and you just can't even like, you're like, oh my God, I've been writing this email for 30 minutes. I can't get it done. Brain is not braining. It's not braining. And I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that I feel good. If I need to take a nap before I start work, I'm going to do that, whatever it is. So put yourself first. I'm feeling so drained today. And I was like, I literally did not have a morning routine at all. And I normally always do. So you saying that I'm like, duh, Josie. Yeah, that's it. That's such a good tip. Best advice you've ever received. My favorite boss told me that you don't get what you don't ask for. And I really believe in being vocal about whatever is on your mind. So related to that, I'll just throw in a second tip. If you're still thinking about it after 24 hours, say something within 48 hours. I think we put ourselves aside. We try to people please. We try to be agreeable. And as a result, we don't say what needs to be said. We don't ask for what we deserve. And so for everyone out there, use your voice. That's why you have it. And it's okay. Don't absorb someone else's discomfort at your own expense. That's great advice. Your last question, Liz, leave our audience with a book or another resource that has changed your life. Because we were talking so much about money, there's a book called The Psychology of Money. It's not a spiritual book, but it's very cool. It talks about the actual psychology. And for any psychology junkies out there who like reading about research studies, it's fun things that are very cool. Like 
people who actually put themselves on a budget. They're actually happier. So there are all these things that I grew up thinking that were wrong that got debunked through this book. One of my clients recommended to me and after I read it, my mind was blown. I thought, I need to really readjust some of these things I've been thinking about. Yeah, I need that. I need that book. Yeah, I definitely need that. That sounds so good. Oh my God, I'm definitely gonna order that. Liz, this was so interesting. This conversation, like, wow. There were so many points where I'm like, I need to go back and take notes on that. Thank you so much for being here. Where can everyone find you, get your book and get more Liz? The book is called The Karma of Success. And you can find it anywhere that you buy books. The website is liztran.com. And you can find me on Instagram at ResetNYC, which is the name of my company. Thank you so much, Josie. This was amazing. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. If this episode gave you any value or you're liking the show in general, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at The Every Girl Podcast on Instagram or theeverygirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> <laughs> 